This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. I loved your book. It's Thank you. so lovely, beautiful writing, beautiful descriptions. You tie together spirituality, biology, human culture. And so I thought it would be great to start with some of the stories from the book, some of the particular trees. David goes around the world and visits 12 trees all around the world. And he listens to their songs, which I just love the way different trees have different songs. Um, and he reports what he hears from the trees and weaves it in to larger histories and geographies. So one of the, one of the stories that really struck me was the sabo tree. Is that pronounced right? Yes. Yeah. And, um, and how it connects um, tensions around industrial resource extraction and biodiversity and the ecology of, and vitality of human and non-human lives. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. To... So my practice at each of these trees was to show up and sit down and shut up for a change and just try to pay attention, to listen, literally listen to the tree, listen to the sounds that were coming from its leaves, the sounds that were echoing in its wood, the sounds of the insects, the sounds of the birds, and of people's conversation around each tree. And so the sabo tree is the, the tree that, that starts the book is in, in Ecuador. It's in the western Amazon, so in eastern Ecuador. This tree is a giant. Some of the other trees in the book are just tiny little saplings or, or little pieces of charcoal. This one is huge. A, a great big tree. It takes uh, a couple of dozen paces at least to go around its trunk. It has enormous buttress roots. It stands 50 or 60 meters tall, 10 meters higher than all the other rainforest trees. It's a, it's a great dome that sticks out of the top of the forest. And it is covered in other plants. So its sound, when the wind blows through it or the rain falls into it, is the sound of dozens, probably hundreds of species, all making manifest through their sound. They're sonifying the biological, the botanical diversity of this place. So just in a gentle rain, one can hear an extraordinary diversity of life in the place. And then, of course, the rain ends, and the animals all start up, and the insects, and there are nine species of different of, of, of primate that live in this place, and dozens of species of, of, of parakeet and, and, and warbler and, and other birds, all calling out as, as the sun breaks through at the end of the rain. So if one maps biological diversity across the world, this part of the Amazon turns out to be the most biodiverse place that we know of, at least in terms of scientific measurement of larger organisms. Microbial diversity, of course, we're only just starting to try to map, let alone to have any accurate maps. So this tree sits at the center of one of the great places of biological diversity, and, and that is, you can tally that up in the usual taxonomic sense, but you can also hear it. You can see it, you can smell it, you can feel it in the varied textures of, of the plants or the varied smells of, of each leaf or the, the decomposing litter. So diversity manifests in all sorts of extraordinary sensory ways. And then 
of course, the culture of, of that place, the, the people who live there, have a very deep understanding based on thousands of years of life within this forest of what is the nature of, of, the, of the forest. And, and their nature is, their understanding is, is of a, a relational uh, ecosystem rather than one that's comprised of separate objects that interact with one another. Rather, each object can only be understood in relation to others. Uh, so it's more an understanding that's about verbs than nouns. That's one sort of analogy one might use to, to understand that. And now, there's this, this convergence of, of a deep cultural understanding of the place of extraordinary biodiversity. And this is a place where tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars of oil lie buried right under the surface. Uh, so this is a, a, the graveyard of a great place of, of of Mesozoic productivity. All that sunlight is now stored up in oil reserves that, of course, Ecuador, like, like any country, is, is examining extracting. So an Ecuador can ill afford to, to leave natural resources unused when they're trying to develop schools and health centers and so forth. So there's, there's quite a, a tension between protecting indigenous communities, protecting biological diversity, and trying to decide how or whether this oil will be extracted. Because, of course, when oil roads go into and previously unroaded forests, there are all sorts of consequences for both the people who live there and the rest of the community of life. Uh, cultures tend to, to fall apart, and, and the biodiversity of the area is often degraded. So the, so the chapter examines some of these tensions and some of the ways that people are resisting the incursion of industrial development. I was struck that you couldn't mention people's names, actually, because it would endanger them. Some of the people that I met in Ecuador indeed are politically active and are resisting oil extraction and uh, were very generous with, with me with, with their time and explaining the situation. Uh, but certainly there is there's political, some political persecution. And also outside of the regular political judicial system, uh, there are people who's, who have interests in oil development proceeding rapidly and so on. So groups of uh, you know, thugs and militias will, will come into villages and, and beat people up. And so, of course, my first responsibility is, as an outsider going in is to, is to try to do no harm and uh, to respect people's desire to indeed have the, tell the story to, and, and so the story can get out. And, and they've told the story to, to many other people who've come from, from Western cultures, but also to try to protect people. And there are a couple of other places in the book where some degree of... Uh, my acknowledgments indicate my debt of gratitude to people, but don't uh, provide names that could be used against people. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I remember you said their spirituality there is a, a really, I think you said empirically grounded. I was also really struck by that. Or you said that it, it grows out of the relationship between the people and the forest and it's very lived spirituality. I wonder if you could say anything more about that. And because you say that the spirits aren't really imaginary. They're actually some kind of relationship between the people and the forest. Yes, yeah, so this whole question of spirits is, is a difficult one. For anyone in one culture to understand what people mean by spirits in another culture is, is a dangerous thing to do, or at least a difficult thing to do. It's dangerous if we presuppose things. So someone looking in at the culture that I'm embedded in and trying to understand abstract concepts that seem rather imaginary, like the nation state, money, 
the process of evolution. I mean, these, these are things that have some grounding in, in physical reality, something you could point to on the street or, or in your hand, but mostly are products of the human imagination. Now, that doesn't mean they're not real. We can imagine things and within our, our society uh, bring reality into, into being through mutual agreement. When, when we look in another culture where those mutual agreements that emerge from experience, and particularly experience over many, many generations, we, the tendency, I find, is often to try and superimpose our own view onto others. So, for example, when I hear about spirits in the Amazon, I imagine some kind of supernatural thing, like the ghosts that I grew up with hearing stories of in, in France, or some kind of a supernatural monotheistic god of the Catholic Church, and so on. And, of course, Amazonian spiritualities are not of that kind. They didn't emerge in the dry, arid Middle East, uh, which has its own kind of spirituality rooted in that place. They emerged from the complex forested ecosystem of the Amazon. So when people say that there isn't much of a boundary between lived daytime experience and the dream world, and that a human body could slip into a jaguar's body and then into a tree and then come back the next day, that sounds rather fanciful to me. And yet, in the reality of the relational ecosystem within the, the forest there, those, those, what I would regard in, in my English, limited English language would refer to as stories, emerge from lived experience of that place. And so, indeed, humanity's relation to the jaguar and to the tree is very real. Uh, it's, in fact, a source of life. And so to regard it as just some sort of supernatural spirit floating above empirical reality, I, from my understanding, which is a limited understanding, is, is wrong-headed. That instead, and everybody that I spoke to in, Amazon, in, in Ecuador and the Amazon said, no, the, these spiritualities emerge from our experience of working with trees, of living with jaguars, of dreaming and of moving through our lives. These are not places that are somehow floating above the reality of taking fruit from a tree, or, or hunting peccaries, or protecting ourselves from, from poisonous animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's a, it's such a great explanation that doesn't try to co-opt their reality or force it into our reality, but... Yes, and you know, the other thing that, was, that became very apparent to me also was whenever you are coming from the outside and talking uh, to people in a different culture, and that applies also within our own culture, the, the, the finer divisions within U.S. culture, is that people r have a very pragmatic um, set of uh, rules about what one would tell to an outsider. So, of course, there are realities that, that I will never have access to because I wasn't born into that culture, uh, and nor was I, you know, and the people I was talking to knew, well, here's a Westerner coming in, he's writing a book about forests, so we're, here is a portion of what we understand that we're going to convey. And that, that has also been used in Ecuador as a political tool. People taking their understanding of forest ecology, taking it to Quito, which is up in the Andes, a very different ecosystem. And some of that understanding of forest ecology has found its way into the nation's constitution. And so, and again, but that's a limited uh, portion of the culture's understanding of the forest that for pragmatic reasons has been removed from its context and put into legal terms that can, can meet the notions of the modern nation state and constitutional law. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you, you did mention a, a man who said, actually, you can't understand this because it's such a different context. And 
Yes. Yeah. So one of the people I spoke with um, in the forest said, and who'd worked with a lot of Americans, particularly students who, who come and study there, had said, yeah, you, you will, it's not just that you won't understand this, it's that you cannot understand it because you weren't born into this culture and nor have you lived here for decades in relation to the trees. So you can understand this perhaps a little bit through your imagination and through metaphor, through an active um, attempt to, to cast your imagination into another realm, certainly, but you can never fully comprehend. And I think that's a very good summation of all cross-cultural conversations. It's not that they're hopeless or that we shouldn't attempt to them, but we should do so in humility, understanding that there is a, there is a limit to full understanding, which to me is an impetus for further conversation. Absolutely. And I think that connects to the subtitle of the book, which is Trees as, as Great Connectors, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so further conversation, and you're, you're listening to the trees, you're hearing their songs, you're seeing them in context as great connectors. Can you tell us why trees are such great connectors? Yeah, so tree is, is a vast organism, right? Its, it's root system goes out, I and mean, sometimes dozens of meters, even a street tree here, which has a rather limited root system, and then it's leaves. Imagine the, the acreage of, if you took every leaf, its upper and lower surface, and spread it out, it would cover hundreds of square meters. And then if you took the internal surfaces of those leaves, because leaves are open to the air on the inside, enormous, vast, great creature. Look at the bark of a tree with a magnifying glass. There's a whole world in just one crevice of bark. So these are massive trees. They're very, very long-lived. I mean, sometimes hundreds of years. And they're rooted in one place. And so they don't have the option of moving on the way animals do. So to, to be a vast organism that is very long-lived, that's going to be in one place, you have to get along with the, the other creatures around you. You have to be really well uh, networked and connected. And you also have to have a very good immune system to say, oh, no, here comes a pathogen, or here comes some organism that's trying to cheat on this system. I'm going to shut off connections so you don't get overrun and killed by freeloaders and viruses and pathogenic fungi and so forth. So trees... Uh, the, the subtitle of the book says trees are uh, you know, nature's great connectors, and, and that, I don't think that's really hyperbole. I think because of their vast size and their longevity, they really do exemplify networks in a way that many organisms, other organisms don't. Now, the human body is also very networked and interconnected with other creatures, as is a, a tiny little bacterial cell. So trees, though, take this to another, to the extreme, and in Part of my intent in writing this book is to talk about biological networks and, and the new science of, of networking and lived communities. And trees seemed a, a particularly uh, wonderful way of doing that because of their lives and because it, on the face of it, they seem so ordinary and they seem like exemplars of atomistic life. They seem to be separate individuals. What could be more separate than a tree trunk? It is an individual. It's a big pole sticking out of the ground. Well. That's an illusion. It turns out the tree is a living community. It's not a separate individual. Yeah, and the fungi play in the root systems play a, a, quite a strong role in connecting the trees to each other, right? I think people may not be familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, so, so both the fungi and the bacteria, in fact, the bacteria are the creatures that are even more mysterious than the fungi, but trees are indeed networked both above ground and below ground through fungal interconnections, and those are 
physical connections where the fungus joins its body and literally grows its body into and around the cells of, of the, the plant cells in the root. So there are tiny little filaments uh, that connect one tree to another. And it's not just material that flows between trees. We've known that for some time, that, that sugars from one tree will wind up in another tree, uh, minerals moving around, but information as well. When one tree is attacked by, by herbivores, that information will flow below ground into this very diffuse network and wind up in, in other trees. So there's all sorts of interconnection and, and sharing happening. The rhythm of that sharing, who's benefiting, who's giving, who's taking, we know some of the edges of that story. Some of the older trees perhaps are helping the youngsters along in, in some cases, but mostly it's, it's a grand mystery. Uh, we don't know exactly how all this plays out. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, the, the paradigm in plant biology was these plants are competing for light, they're competing for nutrients, and they just have to fight it out. And indeed, you know, there's some truth in that. Plants do shade each other out, and they self-shade, so that the branches that are above, the newer branches above the older ones, shade the older ones, and they gradually die out. And you can see that in the architecture of twigs and leaves in, in, a, in the forest. So there is indeed some competition, but there's also a great deal of, of cooperation, and that's the great tension that underlies all of life. This tension between incredible amounts of cooperation and lots and lots of very vigorous competition. It's not that we're in one mode or another. Life is always held between these two poles and needs to find its way through that. Now, biology, particularly evolutionary biology, has emphasized the competitive mode. You know, Tennyson's nature is red in tooth and claw. That's been the idea that, that has dominated much of biological thinking. Well, that red is also the red of the, of the communist ba banner as well as the red of, of, um, of capitalistic blood. And so the way that competition is resolved and the way that creatures uh, survive through the Darwinian struggle is forming alliances with other creatures and through those alliances, thriving. So there is no tra major transition in the history of life that didn't happen through cooperative alliance between two branches of the tree of life. And there's no tree or even a small little plant or fern out in the woods that doesn't live in relation to other creatures. And in fact, in the book I go further and say that life isn't just made of networked organisms, it is made from network. Life is network. And if you sever that network, life falls out of, out of being, out of existence. So that's a it's, it's a different metaphor, a different image through which to examine life. Uh, it, I don't think it's superior to any other. Life is so vast and multi-led that no image, no metaphor is going to completely encompass our understanding. But we've been dominated by this atomistic, individualistic view for so long. We need other models, and these models are emerging from from ecological thinking, from biochemical thinking within biology, and then, of course, from the environmental movement and, and other parts of culture that are, that are pointing out that relationship is, is, is at the center of life, not just a peripheral phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and certainly we see that in so many religious traditions also, having that um, intuition and insight for millennia. And now we see biology and ecology also showing that in another field. 
Yes, and so, you know, who has been talking about the paradox of three in one and one in three uh, for a couple of thousand years? Well, you know, the Christian tradition. Uh, and so what does the, the Trinitarian understanding of God have to say to evolutionary biology? Generally, most biologists would say, not much. We left that behind a long time ago. Or what does the, the Buddhist notion of impermanence and the illusion of the self have to say to biochemistry? Mm, the traditional biochemical answer has been, no, nah, that's a different category. You know, we're, we're just going to study molecules. And I think that we're at a time where we need to listen with some respect to the ideas, the metaphors, the images that people have, have developed over millennia to try to understand this world that we're in. Not that every evolutionary biologist needs to convert to become a Roman Catholic or that every biochemist needs to be a Buddhist, but to respect the wisdom and the smarts and the, the depth of understanding in different traditions so that we can all benefit from the, uh, the great hive of, of, of human understanding that's developed over, over the years. And I think particularly in biology, which is a field that developed partly in reaction to a particular simplified theological, Victorian theological view of God, that nature was just created by this omnipotent, omnibenevolent God, uh, de novo, uh, in just a few days, and that when we study the world, we're just seeing the hand of the creator spread and everything works out for the best in the end and, and so forth, you know, uh, which is a rather simplified view of ecology. Darwin and the, and the people that followed Darwin and some of his contemporaries perhaps rightly had quite a strong reaction to shut that way of thinking out of their understanding of the community of life and how it functions. Now we've, we've made that separation and it's time perhaps to start talking again across some of those barriers. Yeah, and I think that's what your book does so beautifully is it shows this um, very deep and, um, and, and educated understanding of biology and how all these systems work in a very intricate, detailed manner. And at the same time, there's an openness to other ways of knowing of the, the ways of knowing of the people in Ecuador, the ways of knowing of various different people that you encounter um, through your journeys and, and even mentioning some of these parallels with religions and spiritualities. And we don't often see that from biologists, well, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, but I wonder how that is received among biologists or colleagues in, in your field or in the field of ecology. Um, generally, the reception is, is good. I do think there's still quite a, uh, uh, you know, one of my anxieties coming, having come through an evolutionary biology program and so forth is, what will people think of this? Yeah. <laughs> He's finally gone off the edge and, and so forth. Um, but... Uh, and I have not received much of that. Some of the pushback, most, in fact, most of the negative attention that I've received, in fact, has come from people who haven't yet read the book and who've seen uh, just some, some reviews and so forth and have, have uh, jumped to conclusions, which to me is gratifying. It means that, well, maybe my words actually have some, some worth if they're attacking straw men. Uh, yeah. So uh, I do think within biology there's still particularly, I mean, I live in, I've lived for many years in Tennessee, and there are still very vigorous attacks on the teaching of fundamental biological uh, ideas and facts, like evolution, evolution yeah. and climate change and things that now are really not much debated within the scientific community. And so any suggestion that religion is going to come into the, be allowed into the science classroom, I think rightly, 
there are some warning bells, and there's, of course, in this country also an important notion of the separation of church and state that hopefully we can hold on to. We'll see how that goes over the next few years. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a very, uh, it's a very important distinction and one that needs to be respected about listening with respect rather than just inviting, uh, uh, inviting any kind of critique, particularly politically motivated critiques of very well-accepted uh, hypotheses and theories within, within biology and environmental science. So I would hope that a biologist would, would think of this as a source of, of new hypotheses. Mm. So why not nice. read some yeah. Buddhist literature or some contemplative uh, Episcopalians and, and, you know, to get some good ideas about what the next cool hypothesis would be in ecology or evolution. There's... Uh, as creative people, we all know this, right? If you go to an art gallery or an amazing music performance, even if you're not a visual artist or musician, you're working on some other question, you get inspired by these great ideas from, from other people and you, you draw them into your own realm of thinking and of creativity. The same is true in, in the world of, of, of ideas, even within the world of academic ideas. So I don't think it should be threatening. I think when people feel that this sort of threat and anger, it in, indicates a certain insecurity and that our philosophical foundations are not quite as firm as we, we thought they were uh, in that the, the sort of move towards a, a rather vigorous form of atheism within evolutionary biology is not one that I can really ascribe to. I think evolutionary biology is agnostic to, with regard to the existence or non-existence of gods, goddesses, spirits, and and so forth. There's nothing in the scientific experimental process that can distinguish between those hypotheses. So I think it's appropriate for evolutionary biologists to say that. And Separate realm. Yeah, and, and well, the realms are, are all part of one realm, mm -hmm. but the, the tools, the methodological tools of one discipline not, are not always appropriate to answering questions in other realms of, of um, or other areas of reality. Yeah, well said. Yeah. So you mentioned listening, and um, you mentioned it right up off the top. And I love that theme in this book, how you, you, you said just now that you went to different places and you sat down and shut up and listened. And, um, and you were able to really receive a lot. I was intrigued by that idea of listening because, um, well, we don't have a lot of listening in modern Western society, actually. And Often listening is, is kind of coded as feminine, as a receptive activity rather, especially in science, rather than a sort of assertive, like, let's go out and test this hypothesis. Um, so I wonder if you could talk more about that idea of listening and also the idea of songs and this sonic aspect that trees have. Yeah, so the song, well, let me start with the song and then talk about listening. For me, the song and the reason the book is called The Songs of Trees is that a song is, is, is an acoustic experience, of course. But it's also about the stories behind that acoustic experience. And each tree sound and each human conversation around or concerning a tree has a whole series of, of interesting stories around it, whether those stories are on the streets of Manhattan or in the, the olive groves of the, of the West Bank um, or in the, in the boreal forest. So those are the stories wrapped up in the song. And then there's our emotional response to it. So our connection to trees is not just a sensory or an intellectual connection, it's also an emotional connection. And then every song also exists within a cultural context. How we relate to trees is, is shaped partly by our culture, and our culture is shaped in part by our relationship to trees. And so song is an integration of all these different, different levels. And 
it also turns out <laughs> that a song is also, in human culture, is transferred often with the help of trees. When you're playing the guitar or the piano or violin, what is the mediating uh, creature there? It's wood vibrating. You're bringing into, in, into second life uh, the vibratory world of that tree. And one of the, the short chapters in the book concerns a, a luthier who taught me how to listen to a block of maple wood with the fingers to see if this will make a good uh, back for a violin. And even the books of a page. You turn the pages of a book. What is connecting two points of human consciousness? Little flattened sheets of cellulose. Well, the buildings that we meet in, what are they held up by? Well, sometimes by steel and concrete, but often by wood. So right down to the, the very... Uh, center of human society, humans are, trees are often in the center there. And right when we first evolved as, as people, as humans, how did we do that? By building shelters and making fire and gathering around those campfires. So trees were at the center of that and still are. When we burn coal, it's still burning trees. Uh, and it turns out this, the crackling sound of fire lowers our blood pressure. And the conversation around the campfire turns from the realm of the everyday to the realm of the imagination. So human culture and imagination in part was fired by burning trees. So trees and wood have been right at the center of a lot of, uh, a lot of development of human culture and, and still are. And this question of listening, I think, has to be the first move to understanding and, and to knowing. So how do we know and understand another person? Partly it's by posing them questions, but partly... It's by listening and, and receiving, not just listening what we think we're going to hear, but listening to what we're not expecting, that what might trouble us or delight us, depending on, on what it is. And for trees, particularly because they're such different organisms that live in such a different realm of reality from ours, it's particularly important to listen because uh, we have all sorts of narratives ready to project on them. You know, this is the tree of creation or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which trees are central uh, carriers of symbols in our, in our lives. But a tree on the street out here, it's got its own life. And so maybe we could listen to that and under, understand that. And as a, as a scientist and as an ecologist, I bring all sorts of preconceptions. And so this practice of going back dozens and dozens of times to each tree to listen was trying to break through some of those and to learn something about what it is to be a street tree in New York or a sabo tree in the Amazon and to realize I'll never fully know that or even know a poor, tiny portion of it. But through that process of listening to try to uh, crack my preconceptions open and then feed my curiosity about what, what comes next. Yeah, nice. Yeah, you mentioned the street trees, and yeah, sometimes in my classes upstairs we look out and we, we consider, like, are those trees lonely, or, you know, are they isolated, are they connected? And so you talk about a Manhattan street tree in here, and one thing that really struck me was the community of humans that forms kind of in the eddy of the street tree. So he discusses um, how everybody's walking so fast down the streets of Manhattan. But when people want to kind of pull over and look at their phone or smoke a cigarette or something, they all kind of gather under the street tree. That was really fascinating. So that connection forming by the tree. Um, but you discover a lot about nature from that Manhattan street tree. Can you talk about that and those human communities? Yes, I'd be interested to know what, so what, when you talk about the street trees here with the students, what, what is the uh, impression of what those, the nature of those trees are? 
We often look out and in an environmental studies type class, we, we think they're lonely and they, they seem isolated because they're, um, you know, they're so far separated from each other and they're in these little uh, cement wells and we're not sure if they have any birds or any other organisms interacting with them. So but they seem separated from connections with other creatures. Exactly, yes. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But it seems like a testable hypothesis, right. as you yeah, suggested. Is, yeah. yeah, certainly, in t and say in terms of number of birds or insects. Do you, do you think the people in that room also feel lonely? Wow. Mm. <laughs> it could be. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I just, I, so yeah. often trees become the place where we project how we feel about the place. Yeah. So if we're feeling very cold and, and alone in a redwood forest because we didn't, we didn't bring any camping gear and so on. We feel it, it to be a very hostile place and the trees uh, feel yeah. very kind of dark and so forth. Yeah. Or a street tree can feel very exultant. It's like, wow, look at all this life emerging in, this, in the city. Or uh -huh. it can feel, ooh, this tree is so alone, separated from its uh -huh. family. It doesn't know uh -huh. what it's doing here. Uh -huh. It didn't grow up here. Uh -huh. and so, <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. I, yeah, certainly people move to San Francisco to attend the school, and they are far from home, right. family, friends. So, yeah. I, so the tree becomes, I mean, this is something that, of course, in any object of meditation, whether it's uh, attending to the breath in sitting in Vipassana meditation or to sacred icon in, in contemplative prayer, becomes a mirror back to us. Or sitting, as I did for my first book, watching one square meter of forest for a year, or, or sitting with trees. You come to see yourself, of course, because you're returning again and again to the set to this tree, and you're seeing how you change in relation to the tree. So you're learning as much about yourself, maybe more. And that's some of the things I often don't want to know. No, I want to learn about trees. Don't show me all the garbage inside, please. I've got enough of that. Uh, so. Yeah, nice point. One time they did actually leave the classroom and walk around and try to make friends with a tree, and they. There was much more positive response to that rather than just kind of looking out the looking window. At, yeah, so actually engaging with yeah. the tree. Yeah. But it's interesting you word, use that word friendship because that's how I've thought some about this engagement with trees in my own practice. It's, of course, a different kind of friendship than with a human because with people we, we share the same language and we know teeny portions of tree language, biochemical signals and, and so forth. But mostly we, we, can't hear, we can't hear most of what they're saying. Uh, but in going back again and again, sometimes we discover all sorts of extraordinary things about the tree, particularly at the early stages of the friendship. But then lots of the visits are kind of humdrum and not much you know, particularly exciting happening. Same thing with a human friend. You, know, you, you become a deep friend by just being with that person again and again through the good times and the bad and a lot of times that are neither good or bad, but just you're there and you get to know that person more and more. And the same thing with a particular place, like a street corner, or a particular patch of forest, or a plant, or, or, or one's you know, a pet cat. Um, one forms a, a, a bond and a connection that, that has an understanding that goes through many, many levels. And this is what happened for me at, on this Manhattan street corner, as I started to peel away some of the levels in which people were connected to that tree. And you, you mentioned one of them, which is how the tree changes the choreography of the street. A street with no street trees is a, just a big, long river chute, like a channelized uh, flow of water. If you stop, you get mowed over, uh, particularly in Manhattan. And uh, street trees along the edge of the, of the, the, um, 
the sidewalk create little pools and eddies where people can gather and chat, maybe set up a market stall to sell pe things to people walking past, stop and have a conversation. And of course, the temperature under the tree is much lower, 20 degrees lower in the summertime than just right next door on the, on the sun-baked concrete uh, right, uh, right adjacent to the tree. And so the tree diversifies the, the human possibilities on the street and allows connections among people that were not possible uh, in an otherwise untreed street. So that's one of the layers in which uh, people and trees connect. Another is in the sensory realm. The sound of a street changes if it's vaulted by a whole load of wax little glazed um, reflectors. So each leaf reflects back short wavelength sounds. And whereas the long wavelength sounds, like the really low sounds, they go around the leaves and pass away. They just flow out. Whereas the really high-pitched sounds reflect back. So the sound of a sidewalk is actually a little bit brighter under a tree than it is in, on an open sidewalk. And the taste of a sidewalk, you, you all know this, as you walk down a leafy, uh, uh, leafy street, it actually tastes different on the tongue as you're breathing compared to a street that only has diesel trucks and cars going up and down and you know, maybe a subway uh, outgassing it <laughs> onto, the, onto the street and so forth. So there are all these more subtle ways. They're subtle, but they're also very important because they texture the nature of our everyday experience that also becomes part of the trees, literally becomes part of the tree's body, the vibratory energy of the city. You know, how the truck engines cause the wood to shake changes how the woods grow, how the wood grows. So a tree is literally physically different if it grows in, a, in an environment that's shaking a little bit. Say a subway train is going by making the tree shake. The tr tree draws that into its being and it becomes a, a sort of timbered memory of, of that place. And this is what, so now when I, I listen to music, I'm hearing, well, I'm hearing the craftsmanship of the, of the person who made the, the instrument and the, the work of the musician and the composer, but also hearing the story of that tree. We're hearing part of its life coming back out again in the vibrations of, of the, you know, the top of the, of the guitar or, or the violin or the, the piano. And so we're, we're, we're hearing that story, that, that crystallization of the moments in air. Very cool. I, I just hadn't, until I read this, hadn't really gotten that whole connection of the life of the tree and the songs that it would have while it was alive, and then its other life as a musical instrument. Yeah, you know, Japanese carpenters have the term saying that you give the, with good work, you give the tree its second life. And in fact, that second life should be as long and as beautiful as the first. So if you're going to cut down a thousand-year-old tree to make something out of wood, you better make something that's going to last for a thousand years, like a temple that's built with the intention of lasting a thousand years. Now, if it's a short rotation pine tree grown in Georgia that's just grown over 20 years, maybe your ethical responsibility is for a 20-year lifespan for that particular tree. And I'm not sure that that's a, a rock-solid foundation for, eth for ethics, but it is a beautiful way of thinking about this, and it gives us pause uh, because it draws our mind into the time scale of trees, not the human time scale of short, rapid, single-use consumption that, of course, we're, we're so much locked into, particularly with older trees, which, of course, transcend uh, even the longest of human generations or the longest of, of, of many nations' histories, let alone human generations. 
Which makes me think about the Middle East conflict and the olive tree and how you, you, by examining the olive tree there, you're able to um, tap into the roots, as it were, of, of the conflict and the effects that it has on different families, their ability to go to their ancestral farms or not. Um, so can you talk about that episode? Yeah, so the olive tree, of course, is a really important symbol in all the Abrahamic uh, traditions. And, uh, you know, the Christ means the anointed one. You get anointed with olive oil, not canola oil or water and so forth. <coughs> and the uh, olive wood and, and the fire and the light from olive, uh, from burning olive oil is is important symbol, both in scripture and in practice. And olives in the present day, olive trees are used... Uh, as a way of claiming land and cutting down olive trees as a way of, of conquering land. So olives have been at the, uh, involved, sometimes at the center of some of the conflicts over land in the Middle East, uh, particularly in the West Bank and, and the areas around Jerusalem. Uh, so I went and visited with Israeli farmers and West Bank farmers and people who were involved in olive oil trade and in the horticulture of olives. Uh, very, people involved in various so-called sides of the conflict, you know, who might be on other sides of the barriers, but who were united in their concern for the olive tree and the land. Now, that's, that's a story, that the chapter that relates some of that story in the present time, but it also digs down into literally, the, uh, dig, literally digs into the archaeology and the, the ancient ecology of the region. Because it turns out the pollen that comes from trees every spring in the highlands around Jerusalem blows to the east and lands in the Dead Sea. And there it accumulates year by year in the sediments. So if you dig down into the mud at the bottom of the Dead Sea, you have an almost year by year record of what trees were growing in the highlands. And so you can, see, you can see exactly when olives were domesticated about six and a half thousand years ago because suddenly their pollen becomes much more abundant. Before that, olive, wild olives lived but were, were not quite so significant. When people united their agriculture to olives, boom, suddenly the, the pollen deposits really spike up. And from then, pollen goes up, and the olive pollen goes up and down, up and down. When the Romans showed up, they loved olive oil and they loved wine. So lots of olive pollen and lots of grape pollen at that time. So some of this was a, a cultural effect of what people like to eat and drink. But largely that the waxing and waning of, of pollen in the region coordinates with, correlates with the waxing and waning of human civilization over those 6,000 years. And the two things that, that cause people to have to leave the land is... Uh, drought, sometimes extended droughts over a hundred or more years. When great pulses of cold water came into the Atlantic, it stopped the rainfall pushing into the Mediterranean. There was a ma major, major drought in the Middle East. The pollen record entirely disappears from the Dead Sea, and that correlates exactly with when the late Bronze Age collapse happened and, and the other times when there were cultural collapses in the region. Then the other thing is war. Even when things were really good, if people were at each other's throats, uh, invading, uh, capturing people, um, even though the rains were good, there was, there was very little olive pollen because people, culture couldn't thrive in the region. And what's happening now, of course, is that we have a region that's uh, in severe conflict and is projected to be the place that is the most water stressed in the world in the coming generation or two. 
And so the question for the region is how do you move forward knowing that deep history of the essential importance of living well on the land in relation to trees and other things that give sustenance. The olive tree was so important because in this very arid land, it produced food when almost no other plant could produce food. A cup of olive oil has more calories than the same amount of meat. And so here was a tree that could actually literally bring life from a dry land. So the olive tree was at the center of human civilization there because there were few other plants that could thrive, particularly in the, in the more arid uh, centuries. So moving forward, there are several trajectories, and I explored those through visiting both with West Bank farmers who, by necessity, are using uh, donkeys and hand-picking of olives, very low-tech, high involvement of human labor, and almost no involvement of irrigation. They have a quite productive agriculture, and the main constraint there is getting their oil to market across all the separation barriers. And then on the Israeli side of the separation barrier, uh, very high-tech irrigation technologies that allow new varieties of olive to produce oil in places that previously were, were, um, were desert. And so it, both of those methods can work, but they, they thrive in different political situations. And in the West Bank, of course, for many farmers, the main constraint is they can't even get to their land anymore because the land has been taken away into settlements or put on the other side of security barriers. And so every single uh, farmer that I met in the West Bank had lost land and livelihood uh, to, to what they view as the occupation. On the Israeli side, every farmer that I met with had someone in the Israeli army who was at that time in Gaza f fighting. So th this is a place where conflict is not some abstraction in the newspaper, it is your family uh, that is involved in this. And so people have very real reasons to be fearful, uh, to want to erect walls and to defend themselves. So I came away with this sense of all sides having very legitimate reasons for grievance and bonds to the land and, and finding a way forward through that is very difficult. I would argue having a productive agriculture in the region is one of the foundations of peace. It's not the only foundation at all, but it's one of those. And certainly the archaeological record suggests that it's an important one. Yeah, it, with the, the record showing that during times of war there's less pollen than, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm so curious how you selected these 12 trees. Uh, the trees came about uh, partly because they were places I was already going to. So the Sabo tree was one I'd visited years before and made a very deep impression on me at many different levels. So I knew when I started this book I wanted to go visit it. Manhattan, I was visiting Manhattan uh, with my work, and I decided, well, I need, I'm going to befriend a tree here and just try and just go back and forth every time I'm going through the city and see, see what's happening. Then the others were in places where I knew there would be uh, some convergence of story uh, of multiple levels of stories. I didn't know what that would be, but I wanted to situate myself there and to listen and see where they emerged. For example, in Manhattan, I knew there'd be things about air conditioning and cleaning the air and all those things that we, that we know trees do for people in cities. But there were all these other stories that, that I wanted to, uh, that I had no way of predicting and I wanted to, to be open to. Yeah, and like the cottonwood in Denver, how did you end up going there? The cottonwood in Denver is a little sapling. It um, gets cut back every single year by the beavers. It's right in the middle of town. Uh, in Denver, this was a place in, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Denver, but Confluence Park is right in the middle of Denver. It's where Denver was first founded, where the Arapaho had their, um, their encampments. 
before they were forcibly removed from that region by the Western colonists. Uh, and the confluence area was a, a toxic waste dump for decades and has now been turned into an urban park where kids from all around the city are swimming in the water. So here's a major US city with people actually swimming in the river in the middle of town with little cottonwood trees growing all around. So it's a story of trans transformation which was guided by aesthetics. So people decided, we're not gonna try and preserve the pretty places, we're gonna look for the ugly, broken places and try and find a way to, to bring beauty back to these places. Not so much guided by an abstract notion of ecology, but by a notion of bringing the river and the trees back to the people. So Denver has done, now there are lots of things that, that are still not so progressive about Denver, it's a, it's a city that's still sprawling and, and so forth. But in, in the center, the way it's managed its greenways and has reclaimed a lot of these places that formerly very few people would want to step foot in, let alone to go swimming and take their kids for a little picnic in, uh, it seems, um, seems a very hopeful story. And particularly in Colorado, where the mountains and the wilderness areas are often reserved for those who have a car that is functioning, a paycheck that can can get them out of town, uh, the ability to take a long weekend and go up to Aspen and so on. That's a very small slice of Colorado society, whereas these parks in, in, in Denver are open to anyone who can get on the bus or just walk from the neighborhood. And that seems to me a very, very important thing for the environmental movement in the US now to be focused on, because the movement grew out of this notion that wilderness and nature is somewhere else. It's not in the city. The city is mildewed and dwarfed and diseased, in, in Muir's words, uh, whereas the, the wilderness is clean, if only we could get these savages out of it. I mean, so there's, there's this notion of white supremacy underlying the, the, the idea of wilderness and of parks in the country, and, and there are, of course, many advantages to wilderness and park areas. Uh, but I do think, given the history, we need a, 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 a pendulum to swing the other way to give attention to where people live, that we belong, we are nature, we are in relation to the rest of the community of life. So our cities, our, our suburbs, our places where we live have to reflect that and provide opportunities for engagement with what we regard as the other, you know, other people, other trees, the waters, but in fact, it's really part of ourselves. I think that's a great note to end our conversation on. And yeah, yes, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>